0: Good morning, everyone. We're beginning again on our Genesis study after a week off, and happy Fourth of July, happy Independence Day, to everyone. I enjoyed the fact that this morning we had a little bit of patriotic music mixed in with our normal worship. It's not a bad thing. I think there's a place for the the combining of our patriotism with our faith. It reminds me of a story of a minister who was preparing a sermon on one given Sunday, and he was worried about how to ask the congregation for more funds. The church roof was leaking and they needed to raise more money to finish the repairs and as he was lost in thought trying to work out how to make this request he was walking around the the church before the service and noticed that the man sitting behind the organ was different than the usual person and he was a little put off, a little upset to think of uh, having to work with somebody new when he was already distracted by this important financial need. And he went up to introduce himself to the organist. And when he met the man, the substitute organist said, well, what would you like me to play today? And the, the pastor just threw a program at him and said, here, you'll have to figure it out for yourself. I don't have time right now. And by the way, when I make the request for everyone to uh, donate to the building need, uh, you'll have to have something planned to play during that time. So as the service began, the minister, is. a uh, still thinking through how he's going to approach this request and then the moment comes near the end of the service when he has to make the request of the congregation. He stands up and he says unfortunately brothers and sisters we are in great difficulty. The roof repairs are going to cost twice what we expected and we need about $4,000 more in order to complete the repairs. If any of you could pledge at least $100 or more to this effort I ask that you would now stand and and confirm your pledge to the congregation and at that moment the substitute organist began to play the star-spangled banner and that is how the substitute organist became the regular organist so you see there is a way that we can move uh, we can combine our patriotism with our faith in god well That's enough of that. Let's go into the teaching today, I'll pray, and then we'll open up in chapter 9 to pick up where we left off and and look at the story of Noah again. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we are able to study your word. Thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit is present and and is ready to teach. And I ask, Father, that the hearts of all who hear the word this morning would be prepared to receive it in just the way you intend, that we would know it is from you, that we would respond because we are being taught by the one who knows all things. And we look forward, Father, to serving you in this new knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, open your Bibles into chapter 9. We pick up again today at the conclusion of the Noah story, the flood story, the last chapter that truly addresses the events of the flood. As we look in the first verse of chapter 9 today, we see Noah entering a strange new world, a completely remade world. Uh, And Noah's experience here continues to mirror the story of creation and of Adam in the garden. Remember we've mentioned this I think in past weeks. The way in which God has uh, determined here to restart the creation process and many of the details of this process remind us of, of how God began the world in the first place with Adam. You have a world now having been made new out of water as the world was first made out of water. You have Noah now coming into this world, having left the the ark and stepping out onto this new landscape. He is now the only one. He and his family are the only ones in this world. A new beginning of sorts is is upon him in this world. I, I don't think it's any coincidence that there were eight people on this ark, by the way, because in the Bible, the number eight is commonly associated with new beginnings. And so with eight people coming off the ark, you see that picture yet again of a new beginning on earth. Uh, Similarly, we have the new day of a week is the eighth day after a seven-day week. And uh, boys in the nation of Israel were circumcised on the eighth day again, a new beginning for them. So the numerology here is intentional. And not only does this world look different to Noah and his family, obviously the landscape is utterly changed from the way it must have appeared before the flood. But this world will be different in several important and fundamental ways, because God is now at work changing his dispensation of grace from what existed prior to the flood to a new order. And he does this now in conjunction with a new covenant that is given to Noah and to the world, and we will look at this pattern throughout the lesson this morning. So with that introduction, let's open our Bibles, let's go to chapter 9, we'll begin reading at the beginning of Genesis 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. And I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. You may remember a few weeks back earlier in this study, I briefly mentioned at the time that God has determined to work with the sinfulness of men through a series of covenants or we could say dispensations or periods in which God is dispensing his grace in unique ways and each of these periods of human history have operated under a different set of conditions and yet each was designed to teach the very same principles for example the first period that was the period of innocence before the fall when you had Adam and woman in the garden without sin, with an innocent conscience, and their relationship with God was pure and was ensured so long as they remained in that state of innocence. But we all know the story. Adam was unable to remain faithful to God's word, and as a result, he sinned, and in the sin of Adam, that period of human history, that period of dispensation of grace came to an end. Well, the next period was a dispensation of conscience in which sinful man was left to his own conscience concerning right and wrong. And it was up to man in his own conscience to choose right over wrong, to rule over his flesh nature and the sin of that new nature that Adam created by his sin, and to make the right choices. But now we know the story as well there. Men could not rule over their flesh nature, and they chose wrong instead of right. And that led to the Flood. And as God stepped into the events of human history again and brought the Flood about, He did so to wipe out the extreme depravity of human nature that had come upon the earth in that day. And the Flood gives way to a new dispensation. Following the Flood, God now is entering into a covenant with Noah and with all creation. And by this new covenant, He establishes a new set of rules for how God will rule over the hearts of men. a new period or dispensation of grace. In this new period, which we'll study here this morning, God no longer relies exclusively on human conscience alone. He's now going to add another layer or another level of ruling which will address the problem of sin in the world and in men's hearts. And this new element that he adds comes in the form of a covenant. For God is always at work through covenants to establish his rule in the hearts of men now in all cases though whether it's in these three different dispensations including the one that we'll look at today as well as later dispensations nevertheless in all cases the principle behind these dispensations remains the same the problem of man's sin cannot be addressed by anything less than a spiritual solution that the problem of man's sin must wait for a greater solution to come And through each of these dispensations and others that follow, men are being taught or shown conclusively that the solution is not going to be found in these earthly means of ruling, that they all will fall short. Just as the time of innocence fell short, the time of conscience fell short, ultimately now they are reaching a new level of dispensation, it will also fall short. Only through grace manifested in the person of Jesus Christ will there be a permanent solution for our sin. Now, as with the previous covenants God entered into with Adam, God's covenant here with Noah takes a certain form. There's certain elements to a covenant. There's certain terms and conditions, and so this this covenant is no different. It has its own terms and conditions and form. So let's notice those as we go through the text here this morning. First, notice that God is issuing this covenant. He didn't invite Noah into this covenant. It wasn't an open invitation. This was a one-way directed covenant. And these one-way covenants have a name in Scripture. They're called suzerainty covenants. Suzerainty. In other words, it's a royal covenant, a kingly covenant. That's where the word suzerainty comes from. It's a covenant between a greater party and a lesser party, a superior to lesser relationship in which the greater, the one with the power and authority, grants to the lesser the terms of the covenant. This is not an agreement of equals, so we don't have a negotiation, there's no back and forth. Rather, the greater will dictate the terms of the covenant to the lesser and the lesser has no choice in the matter. Just as we notice here, Noah is never asked any question. Noah is never asked to make any decision. He is granted something and once the grant has been made, the covenant is in force. Now, just to cover both sides of the coin for a moment, there is another type of covenant, often seen in Scripture, in which you have parties that are equal. We call that a parity covenant. As the name implies, there is parity between the two parties. And in a parity covenant, each party must agree and commit to the terms of the covenant. We would think of that as something more traditional, like a contract today. But in the case of the suzerainty covenant, the lesser party has nothing to do in order for the covenant to be enforced. They simply receive the grant. And this suzerainty covenant remains in effect strictly on the basis of the faithfulness of the stronger party, and in this case that means God's faithfulness. So this covenant will remain in force as long as God is faithful to the terms that he stipulated. And we know our God to be a covenant-keeping God, a God that cannot lie, a God that does not change his mind. And so with that, we can be certain that the terms of this covenant remain in effect even to today. Speaking of its terms, let's look at those now. In the text that I read this morning, we found three terms that God assigns to man, three things that God says are going to be the terms for man in this arrangement. And then God assigns himself one, But before we look at the terms, notice that God begins the covenant with a blessing. He blesses Noah, and he blesses Noah's sons, and says, be fruitful and multiply. God has appointed Noah and his sons to repopulate the earth, and I want you to imagine the daunting proposition that that must have been for Noah as he stepped off the boat, and he stepped out into a world that must must have looked dramatically different than the one that he last saw when he got onto the boat. And he came out of a world in which he was one of probably thousands, if not perhaps millions of people on Earth. Noah must have uh, gone to markets to buy his food at times. He must have gone to blacksmiths or other artisans in order to get the kinds of equipment he needed or to have basic necessities of life made. And he comes off this boat now to a world that's empty of all of that. And he knew as he leaves the boat now that there's no one else alive. And you know as well as I do that that would have created a great deal of angst and and concern in Noah's heart for how his life would now proceed from this point forward. And God is turning to him and saying, You are blessed to repopulate this earth. Through your work, through the work of your sons, this world will return to where it once was in terms of the population. And you will have the capacity to carry out this command. I will bless you toward that end. And there is great comfort implied in a blessing like that because if Noah is going to be able to live long enough to populate the earth again and through his sons the same, then it answers some fundamental questions for Noah without God necessarily spelling it out. For example, if he is to repopulate the world and his sons as well, then it's implied that he is going to find enough food to live long enough to do that and it implies that he's going to be protected from the elements so that he doesn't die of exposure and it implies that he is going to have the benefits of basic necessities of life it gives Noah an opportunity to consider that if God is prepared to repopulate the earth through him and through his family then it's also a given that God is prepared to preserve him toward that end and it must have been a source of encouragement for Noah to understand that God had that intention through Noah's family so Noah is first offered this blessing and then next God moves into the terms of the covenant. And the first term is a term that changes the relationship between men and animals. You notice in verse 2 in chapter 9, God declares that the beasts of the earth and the birds and all the creeping things and all the sea creatures now have an instinctive fear of mankind. Now before we look at What that means, I want you to take note very quickly that there is one category of animals from the kingdom of animals that is created back in Genesis chapter 1. There's one entry from that kingdom list that's missing here. God lists here all the animals of the animal kingdom except the category of cattle. Now, remember from chapter 1 when we studied this, we learned that there were two divisions of animal types as God listed them in that chapter there were the animals on the land that were beasts, and then there were animals on the land that were cattle. And in Texas, when we think of cattle, we think of something very specific, of course, but in the biblical way of using that term, cattle does not refer to cows specifically, rather it refers to domesticated animals, livestock of any kind, animals that by their very nature are suitable to domestication and to animal husbandry. Those animals are not listed in this list and the reason is because those animals are not to fear men, those are animals that God intends to let men raise and use as livestock and so they are not given an instinctive fear of man. But all other animals on earth from wild beasts to birds to sea creatures and creeping things, they will now all have an instinctive fear of men. And you see this today even. As I mentioned a moment ago, these covenantal terms are permanent because they depend on God's faithfulness and God is faithful, so these terms are still in effect and we see this every day. We probably take it for granted, in fact, and perhaps we've never thought about why it was that wild animals will flee from the sight or even just the smell of man. I find it interesting that even large, dangerous wild animals will initially, in most cases, flee from the scent or from the approach of man, even though these wild animals have the capacity to defend themselves and and in most cases overtake man. And if they are forced to do so, or if they are extremely hungry, or if they're protecting their young, or something like that, then they will attack of course, but they generally have an instinctive fear of men, as God here has proclaimed. You ever stop to wonder why? Obviously now we see why in chapter 9 of Genesis, but it is the case that these, that animals prior to the flood would not have had this kind of instinctive reaction. They would have been very comfortable around man, but now they are going to fear and run from man so that if man pursues them it will have to be a hunt, it will have to be a a work in order to find and track down wild animals. So why did God want animals to have fear of men? Why is this change taking place now? Well, in the passage I read we get the answer very quickly. God was leveling the playing field, so to speak, between men and animals because now God gives man permission to use animals as food. When God instructed Adam back in the garden concerning the food that was to be his in the world, he told Adam he could eat from any plant of the field. But Adam was not given the right to eat animals in that original original day. And the reason at the time for God not giving animals over to Adam for food, is because in order for Adam to eat any animal, he would have to kill that animal. And death had not entered into the world initially as God created Adam. And without death, there could not be an opportunity to eat meat. Death was a product of sin. It was not part of God's natural plan in the beginning. And so as a result, Adam was never given any opportunity to eat meat, even after the sin that he brought into the world. But now men are told that animals of any kind not just certain animals, but all animals, are available for eating. God now has added meat to the table to the vegetarian diet. It's important to note in verse 3 that God says, you are now able to eat meat as I have given you green plants. In other words, eating plants is still an option. God is simply adding a new option to the list. So if somebody were today to decide they did not want to eat meat, there's nothing wrong with that. Eating meat is not a requirement. It's simply an option. But by the same token, if a Christian would like to eat meat, we have no basis on which to judge them for doing so. It's a perfectly appropriate thing. And of course, most people have a diet of both vegetables and meat. Now, this is the first time God has opened the door for men to eat meat. But that doesn't mean that men may never have done so in the past. We can't be sure that some men didn't try eating meat before the flood in disobedience to God's instructions to Adam in the garden. We know the world was was depraved and overrun by sin at that earlier point. That's the reason why the flood came. So it stands to reason that some men may have explored the possibilities of eating meat and have tried it so far. But on the other hand, we would expect that the general rule would apply, that men were not eating meat before this moment and now as a result of what God is doing here, that opportunity became widespread. I tend to think it must have been a awkward moment as, as God begins this, this new dispensation with Noah and his family, because up to this moment, Noah and his family, by and large, would not have thought to eat meat. It would not have been a, a thought on their minds. And at the first suggestion that they could take an animal and kill it and eat the flesh of the animal, I, you have to imagine they were probably uh, a bit put off. Perhaps they looked at one another and said, you go first. No, you go first. <laughs> But now they have that option. Now these kinds of changes to life and to the rules of life and to human behavior as, as God institutes these changes, they become markers for us in distinguishing these changing dispensations, these changing ways God rules over the hearts of men. It's important, remember God is always showing men his grace. It's always been grace from the very beginning. God has always been at work in that same way but he dispenses his grace in various ways and in various forms over the course of human history. and We only have to look forward from this moment a short time to see another example of what we're talking about. We know that when Moses comes off the mountain and delivers the law of God to the nation of Israel, it will include new rules for eating, particularly for eating meat, and God will actually remove the privilege of eating certain animals From the nation of israel so that they will now have a more restricted diet under the law of moses than noah and his family had here at this time israel will only be permitted to eat clean animals under the law so if i look across the landscape of god's dispensations for grace i see a time back in the garden when men could only eat vegetables then i see a time later in the time of noah in which men could eat anything Then I see a time later in the law, the dispensation of law, in which a nation of people, the nation of Israel, could eat plants and some meat. And then if I look even further ahead in history to a dispensation of grace under the new covenant, as God has appointed to men in faith, we are now returned to a time of liberty in which all things, Paul says, are lawful. We may eat anything we wish at this point. We are no longer under the dietary laws of of the dispensation of law. So God can make these changes. He can add rules, take away rules, and move his grace in and out of different forms for his own purpose and to suit his his intentions. But in all cases, he is at work in dispensing his grace, but just in different ways, in different forms. And these changes become markers for us in human history so that we can distinguish between one dispensation and another. We can see how God's rule of of His grace over the hearts of men has changed from time period to time period. Well back to the text here. I haven't answered perhaps the most fundamental question arising from what we see happening here. Why do animals become food for men at this point? Why is God creating this new relationship between men and animals. Well, there is at least one reason immediately, and I think another reason that takes hold later in human history. Immediately, Noah here is facing a world without much food. We can make some assumptions about what the world was like after it emerged from this horrific flood. We would have expected that uh, there'd be far less vegetation on the earth, though we know there are trees and those trees are growing again because we saw the dove take the olive leaf back to Noah in the boat. So we have trees that are probably budding and flowering again on the earth. They'll bring forth new fruit and there'll be food from these trees in the near future. Probably many of the plants of the field that were growing before the flood are gone, but their seeds are under the ground. They'll sprout. We'll have new life come up out of the ground soon enough. And some of that's already begun. Noah spent several months in the ark even after the floodwaters had come off the earth. So some of that growth is already taking place. Noah and his family were probably sustained from the food stores that were inside the boat for, for some period of time, even after they come out of the boat. But it's still the case, I think, that during these early months and even years after the flood, Noah's family and those that would follow from his family are probably in a state in which food is a, is a rationed item. There's probably some shortages. There probably is a very uh, limited supply. And in those early months and years, the benefits of eating protein out of meat sources is going to be very important to keeping that family alive. And I think God has instituted the opportunity for uh, Noah to eat meat as a way of helping Noah's family overcome this gap, this period of time in which there wasn't going to be enough food just naturally available in his, his environment. Obviously he has to ration the animals as well because as they initially come off the ark there's only two of, of all but a few types of animals so Noah is going to have to give some time for animals to re- reproduce but many species of animals can reproduce very quickly Plus, you have some of the clean animals that were on the ark in which Noah had more than just a pair, so he has some extra food in the form of some of these additional pairs. And then secondly, God is at work here in a long-term sense for something more important than merely sustaining Noah in his day. God will, through the law later given to Moses, he will institute feasts as a part of Jewish ritual and Jewish celebration, and these feasts will picture important theological, spiritual events in the life of men and in the life of Israel. In these feasts, as you know, animals are going to be sacrificed in some cases or simply killed and consumed as part of the feast meal. I'm thinking in particular about the lamb that is killed during the Passover feast. And each of these animals and these feasts as a whole are important and powerful pictures of the work God is doing through men to redeem men from their sin. And God wanted a powerful picture that communicated the need for and the purpose in a physical death, Christ's death ultimately as pictured by the Lamb, but death in a general sense as well, that there is a payment for sin, the payment for sin is death, and that a death must occur if there is to be an atonement. And because he has to create that picture for our sake so that we might understand the message of the gospel at its core. God institutes the eating of animals as a function of these feasts so that a death and a taking in of the one who died is implicit, is, is pictured in the nature of a feast. Think how hard it would be to communicate to you and I today about what it means to die and then to have that death pay a penalty for us and for us to then take in or receive that payment for our own sake. Think how hard it would be to communicate the meaning of that message if we had never known a world in which animals were killed and eaten for food. It's in fact almost impossible for us to imagine that difference because we we understand it so instinctively now it doesn't seem possible to even separate it from our experience. To show you how important this taking in of the death of something and making it our own to see how important that message is i want you to go to john chapter six just briefly and look at how jesus uses the same metaphor the metaphor of a death and the one who died being eaten in order for us to take what that death does for our sake to make to appropriate the benefits of that death for our, for our own sake look at john chapter six in which jesus speaking about himself describes this same process John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. And then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me... also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever." When Jesus was speaking these words, you notice that the crowd heard these words only in their literal sense, and so they began to react negatively, saying, how can we be cannibals? How can we actually eat his body? And if you read further into this chapter, you find that the crowd begins to walk away from Jesus because they're repulsed by this suggestion. But Jesus did not mean it in the super literal form. He wasn't suggesting that they would literally eat his body's flesh. He's speaking in a metaphor here in order to communicate the significance of taking in the death of Christ. When we eat an animal that's died for our sake as food on our table, that animal's existence becomes part of our existence, where our body is nourished by the, by the energy of that animal's body. So we can say in a very simple, literal sense, that animal's life became part of our life. When we think of it, though, for the sake of Christ, his death on the cross became our opportunity for eternal life. That's why Jesus said in verse 58, This is the bread which came down out of heaven. He who eats this bread will live forever. So our spiritual life is made possible by a receiving of the work of Christ on the cross. We take that in, so to speak. We eat of it in the sense that we consume it. We make it our own. We make it part of who we are. And that is the picture that provides opportunity for us to understand. And at this early stage, in this early period of this new dispensation, God is at work creating pictures that he will later draw upon in teaching us the truth of the gospel message. So now that God has given men uh, an opportunity to eat animals and, of course, given animals the fear of men to protect them and balance out that that predator-prey relationship, now God moves on to the second term for men in this covenant. He says they may not eat blood. God tells Noah that when he eats meat, men must make sure that the meat is not eaten with its life, that is, with its blood. And what God is asking for here specifically is that the slaughter of animals the preparation of animals in the process of making them ready to eat must include a step of draining the blood that runs through the veins of the animal just to be clear here God is not prohibiting us from eating meat that is rare or even raw for that matter it's not that God doesn't want our steaks to be juicy that's not the point here at all What God is concerned with is if men were to slaughter animals in such a way that the blood remains in the veins and is consumed intentionally, or another way to say it is that our intent is to consume as much blood as we could. Man has been following this prohibition to eating blood ever since this rule was instituted in the day of Noah. Slaughterhouses everywhere in the world, even today, routinely drain the blood of an animal as part of the process of preparing that meat to be sold, that is the natural way in which our world has taken to slaughtering animals. Again, these are terms that are part of a covenant that God has said will remain in effect forever and it is made so by his faithfulness and not by ours. So these these rules are still being followed today by men. Only in the situation of a cult or some similar group in which the goal of the group is to consume blood, only in those cases do we see people routinely violating this rule and of course they do so in disobedience to God's command. Now God tells us why he made this prohibition. He says, if we are now allowed to eat meat, God wants to be clear that the eating of the meat is not to be done for any purpose other than simply for the benefits of consuming it as food. There is no spiritual dimension to eating meat, in other words. And. God prohibits the consumption of blood specifically because blood is both the literal and figurative representation of life and as such it communicates it connotes certain power that God does not want as the purpose in eating meat literally for example blood carries the nutrients that keep our flesh alive it carries energy for the muscles It, it carries away waste products from the metabolism of cells it transports hormones or other essential chemicals throughout the body, and of course it delivers oxygen to the muscles and to the brain particularly. If our blood supply to the brain stops for even just a few seconds, our mental activity will cease and we would die. The blood that courses through our veins and is pumped continuously through our body is the physical source of the life of the flesh itself. Our physical body would stop working very quickly without that continual supply of blood. Now spiritually though, God uses blood to picture the pouring out of life, just as our physical blood loss will lead to physical death. In the spiritual domain, blood is often used as a picture of pouring out life. So when God asks that animal blood be poured out on his altar under the law, it symbolizes that life is leaving a body And is returning to God, being given over to God. And that is the core of God's concern here when he prohibits the eating of blood. God is the one who gives life and who takes it back when he chooses. And we cannot direct in our own power these matters of life and death. We can't take life from another source, for example, in the case of an animal, and appropriate that life for our own sake. We can't gain it in that way. Life is not something we can take for ourselves. And in a spiritual conversation concerning the source of spiritual life, the conversation can never be confused such that we think we can attain, obtain these things by our own work. So as God opens the door for men to eat animals in this new dispensation, he clarifies that the point in that eating is strictly for our physical nourishment, And it is not for the spiritual purpose of obtaining the life of that animal for our own sake. And blood being the key in physical life, God prohibits us from eating that blood. And in that way, he prohibits us from taking a spiritual view of this new activity. In most cults or in other demonic activity, when men purposely drink the blood of an animal, there is a symbolic message clear in that act. They are trying to acquire the life of that animal and make it a part of their own life and in some way appropriate it for themselves and this is not something God has said we are permitted to do and then finally God gives a third mandate in this covenant for men he says human and animal life will now be required as justice for the taking of life God decrees that he now requires that a life be taken whether of a beast or of a man If that beast or man has taken another man's life, has shed man's blood, God says. And in verse 6, God gives the reason behind this decree. God, we're told, is the one who made man and did so in his image, and therefore God is the life giver. And as such, he being the one who gives life, God is also the one who has the right to end life when he decides. And so if a person were to step into God's role, in a sense, and assume God's authority over life and death, that person now must be put to death as punishment for that offense. God here is instituting capital punishment as we say today. And we know that there is a good deal of controversy in the world today and in our society today over the practice of capital punishment, so let's take just a few moments here to understand God's instructions biblically so that we might have a biblical perspective on this topic and first we have to begin where God begins God says in verse 5 that he requires that this now be done requires the word requires in Hebrew it literally means he calls for this response so we have to come face to face with the reality of scripture at this point capital punishment is not contrary to our beliefs as Christians or our values as God's people actually capital punishment is something God himself requires. It is God's expectation that if a life is taken unlawfully, the person who is responsible for that taking of life unlawfully should themselves be subject to capital punishment. Secondly, we need to know that God's standard for the punishment is that there is only one punishment acceptable for those who would unlawfully take another's life. God says there must be a life given for a life taken. Now, later in the law, as he gives to Moses and the nation of Israel, God actually expands this rule. He expands it so that there were additional offenses that also warranted the death penalty. But at this early point in its inception, the principle is very pure and simple a life for a life. If we look ahead, even into the New Testament and into the gospel story, we begin to see why God wanted to draw this connection at this point in time between the taking of life and the punishment of capital punishment. The sin that we all share, according to scripture, requires a life be given for our life of disobedience. Paul says that the wages of sin are death and that's where the life of Christ and the death of Christ comes in. His life was given over, his death was made necessary so that we might gain our lives by a faithful acceptance of his sacrifice on the cross. So in this early stage of man's life on earth and in God's dispensation here, God institutes a rule that is going to later become the essential core of the gospel message. There must be some life taken to pay the penalty for the life that has lived in disobedience. And God now starts that process in a very simple way by saying, when there is a life taken, there must be a life given. In verse 6, God decrees that this punishment be carried out by the hand of man. You notice that in verse 6. This reference, it may be a bit hard to understand or to see at first glance, but in reality, what we see instituted in verse 6 now is the beginning of human government, of men ruling over the earth, over other men, In keeping with God's decree that a life be taken for a life and here's why we can see government beginning in this way if a man is going to carry out the decree that God has now instituted as part of this covenant that the punishment for taking a life will be a life is taken if man is going to actually carry out this decree then he has to establish rules processes procedures and so on for executing this decree properly Think about how this would play out in its first instance. Initially, Noah and his family would have very little concern for this law. There wasn't going to be the likelihood of anyone in his family committing murder, certainly. But at some point, over time, as the population of the world grows, sooner or later, somebody, or perhaps a beast, takes the life of another person. And then there has to be some kind of adjudication of that event, some way to investigate, to understand the facts of what took place, And then, if the facts dictate that there be capital punishment, now I need a way in which to carry out the capital punishment. How is the person to be killed? And who will have the authority to do so? These procedures, these rules that must now be in place in order to carry out God's decree, necessitate the establishment of ruling authorities and rules of law. And by extension, we we end up with government. Obviously it starts very small with with just Noah and his family, but as government is wont to do, it will grow over time. And that's eventually where we end up with traffic laws and financial laws and all kinds of rules that govern everyday life. It all traces back to this moment, to a time period in which God now grants to men the authority to carry out capital punishment. And that structure, that entire structure of human government, which we now take for granted, began. Here in this moment remember this is the beginning of a new dispensation and now we get the chance to name it based on this third decree we call this the dispensation of government where before god ruled over men's hearts through their conscience expecting them to judge right from wrong that dispensation didn't work in the end, it only served to prove that, that men's consciences are in, incapable of taming the, the evil that is in their hearts. And so that required that God step in and bring the flood and create a new start for Noah and his family. But, like we were told just last time in chapter 8, that new start, that new flood, did not cure the sin of men's hearts. Nor was it intended to do so. God brings a new control now in in an attempt to continue regulating the sin of men's hearts, and that new control is human government. But more importantly, not just government by itself, but government wielding the power of the sword. That's a New Testament term that means capital punishment. Government now, by the hand of men, has godly authority, lawful authority, to remove or to take a life of anyone who would take someone's life unlawfully. And that that term, that opportunity, is the linchpin for governmental authority and control over a population. Paul elaborates on this truth very nicely in Romans chapter 13. You may know this uh, section of Romans well. Uh, Listen to what Paul says concerning our subjection to government. In verse 1 he says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And then listen, Paul says this, For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Paul confirms here the principles we now see being established in Genesis chapter 9. First, Paul says there is no authority on earth, governmental authority that is, except those established by God. You know, governments are bad, generally speaking. There's no such thing as a perfect government. And they're bad because they're made up of sinful human beings running the show. And so we should expect what we get. But nevertheless, Paul says, it is an institution created and sustained by God himself. And it is being given to men as part of God's dispensing of his grace in an attempt to help control or mitigate the evil in men's hearts. That's why Paul says it is a minister of God for you for good. Good meaning to obtain a better outcome than if there wasn't governmental authority. Can you imagine the the anarchy that would reign on earth through the evil of men's hearts if we didn't have human government working at some level to contain it? And then Paul says if we resist that authority, if we act in defiance to the authorities of government, We are actually resisting God himself because it is through these authorities that God is dispensing his grace. And then Paul says, and this is where it becomes most important for us today, Paul says, government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. What he's saying here is that God has given government the right to take a life, beginning all the way here, back in chapter 9 of Genesis, for a very good reason, so that God, through men, can punish evildoers and encourage law keeping. This is our confirmation that the arrival of government coincided with the arrival of capital punishment. They go hand in hand. So in chapter 9 here at this moment, God has said to Noah, when men take another man's life, they themselves will be subject to capital punishment at the hands of government, at the hands of men. I would also argue from this principle of scripture that if a government decides to remove the power of the sword from its options if a government decides that they will no longer practice capital punishment then they are stepping away from the inherent reason for government's existence in order to check man's sin in order to be a governor or a control over the evil of men's hearts they are becoming less effective in a general sense because they are retreating from the very purpose in which God instituted government to begin with. And I think we see evidence of that in our world today, that where governments have refrained from taking this last and most basic step of punishment in the face of unrestrained evil, the society begins to deteriorate. But even as this new form of grace, this new dispensation, this dispensation of government is being given to men, it is still the case that it is not a solution for man's sin. Simply put, government is not the solution for the evil of men's hearts. And no government is good enough to solve the problem that only finds its solution in in the spiritual change that God alone can do through the work of Christ in our hearts. God is at work here, though, teaching mankind over and over again through these various dispensations that the only solution to man's sin is found through the man Christ himself there is no human or earthly solution although these dispensations these ways in which God rules over men's hearts will have a mitigating effect a temporary lessening of the evil of men's hearts and therefore they are grace to us in the short term well as we conclude today let's look at the final decree God has given three to men now but he reserves one for himself so let's turn to the final decree the thing that God obligates himself to in the terms of this covenant. Verse 8, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the field with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood, never again, neither again, there, and neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, from the beginning of this chapter, God has been establishing a covenant and the terms of that covenant. But here in verse 9, God plainly states that this is a covenant, that he is making an agreement. He's doing it by his own hand. In other words, it's a suzerainty agreement and that it will be between himself and Noah, and all Noah's descendants. And under these circumstances, what he's saying is all mankind. Remember, just like Adam, every human being descends directly from Noah. You and I can trace our family tree, if it were possible to to know everyone who's come before us, we would trace our own family tree all the way back to Noah, to one of Noah's sons, who themselves, of course, came from Noah. So God now obligates himself through these, through the terms of this covenant to every human being who has lived since the day of Noah. He goes a step further, as you notice, though. He also obligates himself to every creature in his creation, and not just to man, but to everything that lives on the face of the earth. This, by the way, is the last covenant in Scripture that is made between God and all mankind or all creation. For every covenant that follows this one, God's promises of grace will begin to narrow and become increasingly exclusive to a portion of humanity as opposed to all of humanity. God will be dispensing his grace to mankind as a function of his work through a single people group through the nation of Israel rather than through all men everywhere. But at this point, he is still working through all and so God offers his word of promise to all humanity. He says he will never again cut off life from the earth using a flood of water the earth will never again see a destruction like he just did through noah but of course in the way god phrases this promise he leaves open the possibility that he will destroy the world some other way he he notice he does not guarantee the world will never be destroyed he only guarantees that it will never be destroyed again by water and in Isaiah and probably most well-known in Second Peter we read that the world is destined for another destruction and in that coming destruction the world will be destroyed not by water but in a even more thorough way. He will destroy the world by fire and in that coming destruction we're told the world will not only be destroyed in terms of the life on the earth but the actual physical earth itself will be taken away and burned up. We read of this happening in Revelation chapter 21 in which we're told that a new heavens and new earth will be brought down to replace the old which will have been burned up and consumed entirely by fire. God will replace all that we know with something completely new and different. And by faith, faith in Christ, we are assured to be a part of that new world with Christ. And we will know that we survive this coming fiery judgment in exactly the same way that Noah and his family survived the watery one of his day. We will be secure inside the ark of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for the grace that you've shown us, not only in our own life but throughout history and all the dispensations that you have orchestrated to bring about your grace on earth. Thank you, Father, that we in our day have seen the ultimate measure of that grace manifested in your Son, that we would be the privileged generation who perhaps not only saw and knew your Son through the work of the Gospel, but might also be here on the day that he returns for his church. What a privilege that would be, and we pray, Father, for his quick arrival and coming as you would say in your Word. And in the meantime, Father, as we wait for that return, I pray that what we have heard today in your Word and what we know from the Scriptures generally would drive us to be an ambassador and a witness and a man or woman who reflects your glory in this world. Put us to great work in that end, Father. Help us to lead many to know you. Help us to be a witness in all that we say and do. We pray these things and ask, Father, to return next week in our study of Genesis. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen.